So here we are, um, really, really closing in on the end of 1 Thessalonians. We've been here now for 12 weeks. And um, at this point in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has answered all of the questions that, that were being presented to him about the return of Christ. Um, but instead of wrapping up with a benediction like you find in the book of Revelation, he ends with some very succinct and rapid-fire pastoral instructions. Why do you suppose that he would do that hot on the heels of, of essentially an entire chapter of talking about the return of Christ? You remember how he spoke in chapter 5 when he said, concerning the times and the seasons, those would be, those would be the times and seasons surrounding the return of Christ. He said, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Paul, as we talked about last week, didn't focus on theories, conspiracy theories about the return of Jesus. In fact, he, he focused entirely on clear revelation, on facts. He reminded the Thessalonians simply that Christ is returning. Aren't you glad of that? Christ is returning, and they're to keep their eye on the ball. They're there to, to remain spiritually sober. They're to occupy themselves with joyful, expectant urgency that that day is approaching. And so it's natural that he would now tell them in this portion of the book how to live as the body of Christ. They have to survive now. They have to survive. They have to thrive living in enemy territory. And Paul points to three areas in this portion of pastoral instructions. He talks about their relationships with their leaders, their relationships with others, and of course, he's going to mention their relationship with God. And so he begins with the way that they are relating to their leadership. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. This related to how the, the church there in Thessalonica was to regard the leaders within their church. Now, this tells us something, even though it's not stated explicitly, it is certainly implied, that at some point in their history, Paul or perhaps Timothy had ordained spiritual leadership to lead the Thessalonian church as elders. Setting in eldership was always among the highest priorities of Paul whenever he preached the gospel in a city and planted a church there. After Paul's first missionary journey, as it's winding down in Acts 14, we read these words. Acts 14:23. it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul was moving on now after this first missionary journey. He was moving on. And, and those churches that he had begun would need local leadership to watch over them, to watch over their souls. Titus 1.5 also says something similar. It says Paul is talking to his protege Titus and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So as you see here in these couple of quick examples... That a setting in elders is very, very important to the church. Paul's saying that without elders, things would be disordered. He said the elders were to put things in order. So without elders, things 
would obviously be disordered. A lack of eldership is detrimental not only to the order in the church, but to instruction and to discipline and to godly example. The the church requires elders. But don't overlook this passage that Paul tells us that that uh, the, about those who labor among you he he is he's in this little verse that began our, our passage today he's actually giving a job description for those who would serve as a pastor who would serve as elder it's this job description is implied in here and he, he lists three things he says that the elders labor among you and that they're over you and that they admonish the church let's take a look at each one of those to labor among you would mean, this is so basic, it's almost embarrassing, but to labor among you would mean that a church leader should be found working diligently. Church leadership is not some exalted position in the church over the less spiritual serfs who can do their bidding. Amen. Come on now. That's not what the idea of church leadership is. The exalted few. In fact, Jesus could not have been clear. He said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. See, a servant, obviously, this is not rocket science. A servant works for someone. So leadership in the church is not about self-exaltation, but about self-exertion. Amen? The word translated, I love this, I've seen this in a couple of other places in the scripture, maybe even mentioned it to you once or twice, that the word here in this passage translated that they labor among you, the word labor, it means not to clock in nine to five for your 40 hour work week. It literally means to work, to labor to the point of utter exhaustion. Being a servant doesn't diminish, however, that the elders have headship in the governing affairs of the church. God has placed them in charge. Paul says authoritatively that they are over you. Let's look at two additional passages that will hopefully clarify this. So again, you'll see that this is not about lording, a few in the church lording over everyone else. Paul says, or Peter says rather, in uh, 1 Peter, the elders shepherd the flock of God. Now, I want you to know something really critical. Every time I mention this verse, I point this out, that um, who, who does the flock belong to? God. It says they shepherd the flock of God. It doesn't say that God is going to find a few select leaders and he's going to give them their own little flock so that they can shepherd them. No, 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 no. This is a, this is a delegated um, reality that God takes his own flock and, and, and raises up under shepherds of his flock to manage those shepherds, to, to manage those sheep rather. So it is true that sheep follow the shepherd But he's also the one, if you understand the role of a shepherd, especially in the ancient world, the shepherd is the one who must willingly embrace peril for the sheep's benefit. If you're ever not, and I hope that you see me and Pastor Dave and and, uh, Daryl and any other elders doing that. I hope you see that. But if you ever need to find a new church, don't find a church where the shepherd is not willing to embrace peril for you. 
The shepherd should willingly embrace peril for the sheep's benefit, even if the sheep are oblivious to what the shepherd does for their own protection and safety. So the Bible says more about this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11, or 17 rather, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. We don't, most of us like the words obey and submit. We're Americans, independent, and worse than that, we're Texans. Come and take it. Don't tread on me. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. Now watch. Why? Because they're the, they're the, the winners of the spiritual lottery? No. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let me tell you something. I've said this before. I mean it. I am not exaggerating. I have lost sleep, woken up in a cold sweat. That is not exaggeration language. It's true language. Over the fact that as a leader, I will give an itemized account to the chief shepherd for how I cared for the sheep. There will be a day coming. We talked about standing before the throne of God. There will become a day where where God is going to have me standing there and he will list all of your names and ask for an accounting of how I shepherded you. I am going to give an account for your souls. And so Paul graciously, or, or the writer of Hebrews rather, graciously for those of us who play this role, he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. He's saying that when you assist us in our leadership, you're actually creating an advantage for yourself. Isn't that interesting? Serving and being over the church, thirdly, as a shepherd, it involves admonishing. And this word means to warn. A leader's job description includes confronting sinful habits and unbiblical beliefs and and pastors i have not met the pastor yet who really enjoys this part of their ministry and i would say if they do enjoy it they're probably dysfunctional on a number of levels and unhealthy i hate this part of my job i hate it i i sometimes i put it off too long because of this knot in my stomach when i have to talk to somebody about something that needs to change in them i hate it Admonishment usually is closely tied to preaching and teaching. A lot of it happens from up here, but it also involves one-on-one conversations with people that we're caring for. And what I want you to know is admonishment is not, the Bible in Hebrews chapter 12 makes this clear, admonishment is not something to be avoided. Every Christian faces admonishment. But what Hebrews chapter 12 and other verses tell us is that we should remember that when we are admonished in church, when we are warned, that it's actually a sign both of God's love and the, the love of the leader for you. Did you know that? The Bible says that the Lord disciplines the son who he loves. Think about that. Though it's not fun, it doesn't make a pastor popular. Trust me, I know. I've got the scars to prove it. Um, Paul instructs the church to esteem their leaders very highly in love because of their work. If you haven't figured this out, and, and I, I don't want to do anything else with my life. I love my job. But I, I have to kind of put a plug in for us to say this. Leaders in the church have a very, very tough job, and it holds forth very little promise of earthly reward. (laughs) I'm not rich is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Um, 
the, the, uh, there, there's not a lot that comes you know, from, from in, in the form of earthly reward. It, this job can be fraught with discouragement. People often fail to see the effort and the love that are put forth and the emotional strain that lands on us and our families. And so Paul says, hey, Thessalonian church, lavish these guys with esteem and love, the ones that are faithfully working and laboring among you. And I want to admit to you guys, I'm not trying to be a downer here. We're going to get past this part of the message real quick. But I just got to admit to you that I have days I'm not speaking for Pastor Dave or the other elders, others, other elders. I am saying that I have days when I am absolutely and inexplicably ready to throw in the towel. I mean, just ready to say, I am done. I sometimes I fantasize, fantasize about how cool it would be to have a nine to five job where I could just clock in in the morning and clock out at night and not think about it till the next morning. Pastoring is not like that. I, but, but what I want you to hear is I'm not, I'm not here to gripe and complain. I told you I love my job. I do. I, I don't want to do anything else. But, but what it makes the difference when Paul says about esteeming and, and lavishing esteem and love, I am absolutely, I want you to hear this, sustained, just, just given life by many of you who love me, and who encourage me even when you don't know how appealing quitting would be to me. I thank you for that. You will not know until eternity how life-giving your faithful love has been to Ginger and me. Amen, Ginger? You'll never know it. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Best church ever. And I, and I mean that. That's not pandering. I mean it. But it seems at this point in the passage, and you're probably grateful for this, that Paul seems to switch gears to talk about how the church relates to each other and not to their leaders. But in truth, the thoughts that he's about to mention are closely connected to the ones on relating to leadership. He, when he begins by saying, be at peace among yourselves. It is a huge win for any church leader when people in a congregation choose to be at peace. It's a great win. Nothing sucks the momentum out of a ministry faster than constantly settling disputes and addressing offenses that exist in the church. It is just exhausting. Paul urges the Thessalonians to intentionally, therefore, work towards peace, to make it a goal, to make it a commitment, to make it an absolute determination. The most effective way at maintaining peace in the church is through love. And love in the church should be expressed by remembering that we will never just, like I talked about this a few weeks ago, be able to flip a switch to love each other. We're too different. And some of you are too weird. But we'll never, we'll, we'll never, I, I'm not, you are, but, but, but we'll never be able to just flip the switch to just love each other. And so the way that we love each other and the best way to love each other is to remember that Christ has loved us when we were entirely unlovable. Entirely. That's the way we accomplish it. We apply this knowledge of how Christ loved us to others by esteeming them highly. The Bible says to esteem each other higher than yourself. And we do it like I prayed this morning by forgiving them freely, like not not keeping a little catalog of offenses, but quickly releasing each other from their debts to each other. 
And we do it by just overlooking offenses in the first place. We're just letting go of it. But interestingly, Paul is instructing the Thessalonians to share in the work of the leaders when he says to ensure that love and peace prevail in the church. Watch what he says next. He says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now note here that his instruction is not to pastors or elders. It's not. He says, we urge you, brothers. Paul is telling them to take ownership in their church to ensure harmony, admonish, encourage, help, be patient. Usually people look to the elders to do this. Admonish means warning and something's gone wrong. Somebody better get on that. Pastor Dave better get over there and fix that. Encourage. Well, of course you expect your pastor to encourage you. But Paul is saying right here that it's our plural job it is the brothers the sisters working together to do this but people look to elders to do it and they excuse themselves from messy challenges and difficult conversations let's start with that admonishment bit he says admonish the idol just like he said the leader should admonish people if someone is spiritually disengaged what he is saying is speak up say something Admonish them. Call them up higher. Speak up. This would apply um, if, if someone is promoting false doctrine. Don't call the pastor. You handle it. Speak up. If someone's promoting false doctrine, it would be helpful to know right doctrine. Amen? Because if there are promoting false doctrine and you don't know what right doctrine is, you're never going to know what to say. And so you you know right doctrine so you can correct false doctrine. Or when someone is returning, someone we love and care for is returning to worldly patterns of living. Now when when we confront, when we admonish, we don't do this in some arrogant, harsh, judicial way. But we do it gently and we do it humbly, all the while praying for that person to have a heart of repentance. There are times... Obviously, I'm not trying to wash my hands of this, when you should wisely involve a leader. But please hear me. Lots of stuff could be handled more quickly and even more effectively by it never getting this far. You hear me? By letting just the brothers and sisters handle it. Paul goes on to say, encourage the faint-hearted. Everyone needs encouragement. So what I've encouraged you to do before and what I want to reiterate is that Can you just start coming to church, even with all the stuff you're dealing with, because we all are, come to church focusing on who needs your gift, who needs your words of encouragement, consolation, and admonition, who needs them? Think about that when you walk into the door so you can encourage the faint-hearted. He goes on, he says, help the weak. He's envisioning a church that develops this ability to sniff out the infirmed and the distraught and those in need, and they rush in to bear their burdens. Again, hear me, this is not the domain of the elders and deacons alone. We must all share in it. We together bear each other's burdens. Amen? And then he says, be patient with all. I could give you a whole sermon on that, but do I really even need to comment on this at all? Be patient with all. How simple could that instruction be, and yet how difficult 
is it for many of us, most of us, all of us? How much less infighting would churches experience across our world if we would just recognize, before I start digging into Dave Burke's weaknesses, that I would realize that I have some of my own. <laughs> Surprise! I have some weaknesses of my own. And, and, and if I realize that, then I'm much more apt to be patient with David or anyone else. He goes on, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's no surprise to anyone if I were to say to you that we live right now, 2019, almost 2020, in an outrage culture. We love to be triggered into absolute outrage. We love to draw battle lines and to choose side. And I have to humble myself to to you this morning and tell you I am not innocent. I'm guilty. I have a Twitter app on my phone so it can remind me every day what I'm supposed to be mad about. I wouldn't know if I wouldn't open Twitter, but I open Twitter and then, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be upset about today. I don't want to fail and you know, let down the entire culture by not, not addressing this little issue that won't matter in 10 minutes. Our outrage always or usually results in us adopting this kind of eye-for-an-eye retaliatory posture with each other, even in the body of Christ. I can't believe that he took position A on Twitter when I'm taking position B heretic remember i was thinking about this this week and it really convicted me do you remember when jesus said to love your enemies raise your hand if you remember that did you know that that's not all jesus said he didn't just say to love your enemies because if he just said to love your enemies we could approach that passage like we do forgiveness. You can be just eaten up with bitterness and unforgiveness. Say, oh, I've forgiven them because the words came out of your mouth. And absolutely nothing has happened in your heart. So in the same way, you could say, well, I love my enemies. I'll, I'll be thinking about them while they're rotten in hell. You see what I'm saying? Often our words have no impact on our heart. And so Jesus, knowing that in his infinite, eternal wisdom, did not only say to love your enemies, he said to bless your enemies. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where loving, at least in what we say, is super easy. But blessing puts action to the words that are coming out of our mouth. Yuck. It calls us to bless our enemies, not just to satisfy ourselves and others with our words of love, but to demonstrate love by visible actions. Now listen to me carefully. This doesn't mean that some things aren't wrong or that we should never speak out in a corrective or protesting way. But when we speak up, there ought to be clear evidence of God's love towards even the vilest offenders. I think one great example of this in our church is Phoenix Lundstrom the way that she pours out her life 
towards people who are, are, are incarcerated for terrible crimes, who are, in, who are in, on death row for, for things that would, would, would cause all of our hair to curl. But she looks past the offense and demonstrates love to them in very, very tangible ways. She doesn't just love society's enemies. She goes the extra step and blesses them. And I thank you for that, Phoenix. So it doesn't mean that things aren't wrong and that we should never speak up. It just means that there has to be clear evidence of God's love toward the vilest. And it has to be coupled with a genuine desire for their repentance and embracing of spiritual truth. And Paul adds all of this, to all of this rather, an exhortation concerning the way we relate to God. So he's dealt with leaders and each other. Now he's going to talk to God, talk about God. And he says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, they're separated in three verses. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks. But these instructions should be joined. They're all summed up with this reminder that, that doing these three things, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, this is the will of God for Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice, pray, be thankful. Rejoice always. What does that even mean? Does that mean that we have to be fake and giddy all the time, no matter what kind of firestorm is happening in us of life? Absolutely not. What it boils down to, to rejoice always, boils down to this, that no matter where you find yourself in life, you are acknowledging God's sovereignty. By choosing to rejoice instead of complain or, or to, to do whatever you can to avoid unpleasantness, you are declaring both to yourself and those around you, and I would even add to those beings in the heavenlies, you are declaring God is in control. Rejoicing is innately con- connected to our worship. Sometimes you come in here and the band is knocking it out of the park and you can't worship, you can't connect to it because you haven't been rejoicing. Your circumstances have been tossing you around and kicking you around like a soccer ball. And, and, and what, what I'm telling you is, if you would commit to rejoicing, always, as Paul says, to acknowledge God's sovereignty, there would be a whole different connection that would happen in you in worship. Rejoice always. You can't properly give worship when the center of attention in your life is the goodness or badness of your circumstances. That goes like this all the time. Worship demands. This is what, when these guys are playing and they're singing and and this atmosphere is being filled with this beautiful music, what worship is demanding. Did you know worship makes a demand? Worship demands that you see by faith beyond where you're finding yourself right now to where God dwells. And more importantly, where God rules. This becomes very, very insignificant when you see what God is doing in the heavens. And that's what rejoicing does. I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of you might not have considered it since Sunday school. But if you'll remember, the, the king had set up this golden image 
90 feet tall, and they were told when the sound of the music played that they were to give it their worship and fall on their faces. Well, they loved the God of Israel, and they weren't about to do that, and so they, they said they weren't going to do it. And the, the penalty for not doing it was to be thrown into a burning furnace so hot that those attending the furnace were instantly killed. And they were going to be tossed in there. And, and when they get this news... Because you are defying the king's order, you are going to be tossed into this certain death, in this flaming furnace. Their answer demonstrates rejoicing in the worst possible situation. And this is what they say. I love it. If this be so, they're saying, if if you're really going to toss us in the furnace, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And all of us there will be, whoa, amen, that's right. You know, he's able to deliver us. He's not done. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, watch these three words. But if not. I said earlier, and that's where the rubber meets the road. This is where it smacks the pavement right here. When you can say, hey, God's able to do anything. He can heal my body of cancer. He can bring my lost child home. He can do anything. He can provide for my needs. He can do anything. But I am telling you, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Because I don't have a quid pro quo agreement with God. I do not worship him because he's scratching my back. I worship him because he's worthy of my worship. That's what rejoicing always means. See, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they chose to to trust in both God's worth and his power, no matter what their rotten circumstance, to rely on his power alone. Think about this. You may have never considered it. To, To rely on God's power alone would be to try to demand God's response. God, we just declared how powerful you are. Now come show up. But to remember that God is not only powerful, He is infinitely worthy. It changes your perspective. And it meant for these guys that dying for Him, if that was what He required, is a great honor. And it's not too much to ask. Boy, that'll shift your perspective, won't it? You don't get all grumpy at God. Well, why haven't you done this? Who cares why I hadn't done it? He's worthy to require anything of me. Paul goes on, pray without ceasing. Wow. I would ask all of you who are doing this to raise your hand, but it would embarrass me because I'm not. I'm not praying without ceasing. So many times I'll find myself in situations in my heart or in my life and i'll go i really should have prayed make a dumb decision i'll think i really should have prayed see rejoicing acknowledges god's sovereignty but praying without ceasing means to acknowledge that we are totally dependent on him completely 100 percent dependent god Listen to me, God is not a set of training wheels for you to have a happy life that you can eventually outgrow. 
You're not, he's not just going to keep you from falling down until you figure this out on your own. The church used to sing this hymn, beautiful hymn, for years that said, I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. We used to sing that all the time. But today, however, what many of us approach God like he's a lawyer on retainer and we keep him on speed dial just in case something suddenly comes up. We're not in moment by moment fellowship with him, but if we need him, we know how to get a hold of him. But constant prayer, this this remaining in a posture of prayer to where you're walking with God and, and, and you're talking to Him throughout the day and you, can, you, you, you have immediate fellowship with Him. Constant prayer reminds us that He's not our lawyer on retainer. He is our life. And without daily fellowship and care, we are recognizing that without those things, he, he, we're hopeless and we're doomed beyond remedy. We're not going to pull out of this nosedive. Then he says, Paul says, to give thanks in all circumstances. This, we've acknowledged his sovereignty and our total dependence. To give thanks in all circumstances is an acknowledgement that we are a blessed people. Let me just ask you, are you blessed? What has God done for you? Think about it. Catalog it. Chew on it. Marinate in it. What has God done for you? Has he saved you from sin, from death, from hell, from the devil, from the world, from the flesh? Has he saved you? Has he healed you? Healed you in your body? Healed you of your backslidings? Healed you of demonic oppression? Has he healed you? Has he forgiven you? Has he provided for you? And have you? honestly thanked him for all of this the more do you remain in a state of perpetual thanksgiving let me help you of course you don't i don't none of us do and watch this while that's true and we could say oh man i'm such a slug i i, I don't I don't ever, you know, remember to give God thanks. Listen to this. While we're remaining outside of thanksgiving way too often, the Bible says, Jesus said, in fact, that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that God always blesses us even when we're ungrateful. Wow. Wow. Still, when, when Paul says to give thanks in all circumstances, it's not to say that, that hey, just kind of adopt this Pollyanna thing, everything's great. Listen to me. This is the word of the Lord. Some circumstances stink. They stink. They're horrible. They're awful. But what I want you to notice is, is one of the most common misinterpretations of Scripture. This text does not say to give thanks for all circumstances. Doesn't say it. Sickness, 
lost, etc. It does not say to give thanks for those things. It says to give thanks in all circumstances. No matter where I find myself, I'm looking above and beyond it to Jesus. Thanksgiving looks beyond our days to our redemption. This thought combines the principle of the joyful acknowledgement of God's sovereignty through rejoicing to our joyful acknowledgement of our dependence on Him through prayer. When you look at all of your success, coupled with all your failure, and yet you still choose to declare that God is in charge, bringing all of your cares to Him unceasingly in prayer, thankfulness will be the natural result of that. You won't be able to help it. In rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, we fulfill God's will. People often ask me, in one way or another, how they can know God's will for their life. I think what they're really asking me is, what is the part of God's will that I can know that makes me unique and special? But I want to tell you something and set this straight once and for all. You want to know what makes you special? You want to know what makes you unique? You are unique because before the foundation of the world, Jesus chose you in him. Let me try again. You are unique and you are special because before the foundation of this world, Jesus chose you specifically in him. He chose you. Jesus chose you. He loved you. He died for you. That's all the specialness and uniqueness you need. And if you think you need more than that, you have an idol in your life and it bears your name. Rejoicing, prayer, thanksgiving takes your eyes off of you and it places them on the one who deserves all of your attention and all of your worship. Paul goes on, do not quench the spirit. Paul concludes this section by encouraging us to live as people of the Spirit. This isn't some spooky, charismatic instruction, but the life that Jesus promised to us. We shouldn't neglect neglect the Holy Spirit, who is the greatest of all gifts that we receive through Christ's redemption. Jesus said to his disciples that it was better for him to go back to the Father in order that he could send the Holy Spirit to live in us, to empower us, to testify of Jesus to us. And this is the greatest advantage we have, and yet, sadly, most of us live our days with little awareness of Him. So Paul says here to the Thessalonians, do not put out the Spirit's fire. He's commanding the church not to engage in or avoid any activity that might thwart the Spirit's work. Believers need to cultivate an awareness of and dependence on the Holy Spirit to guide us, to protect us, to enable us, if we're to be what Jesus desires. And then he gets real specifically, probably due to some specific situation there in Thessalonica. But he says, do not despise prophecies. One way the Spirit shows his power is through the gift of prophecy. And this is when he discloses God's will through fellow Christians. Many people imagine the gift of prophecy, especially those who are resistant to it. They imagine it as Someone, some gifted person being able to tell the future or read people's minds, some, like some sort of Christian psychic. But more than two-thirds, I want you to hear this, more than two-thirds of all the prophetic activity mentioned in the Bible is what we would describe as forth-telling 
versus foretelling. In other words, most biblical prophecy is to tell people what God wants them to know rather than what might happen in the future or to reveal some secret. And all preaching and teaching should have a prophetic element to it. This is why we don't approach the pulpit casually, those of us who preach here, and we don't just casually give it up to other people to preach in because it should have a prophetic element to it. But God also sometimes, beyond this, the, what happens in preaching and teaching, he also sometimes reveals things to people through spiritual impressions. There's a bunch of ways that can happen. I don't have time to go into this morning, but this is always for the church's benefit. The purpose of this gift is actually stated as such in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It says that this gift of prophecy is to build people up It's to encourage them and to console them. So Paul says, don't despise this gift. It's for the benefit of the body. But what Paul isn't suggesting in this passage is that everything someone says God gave them to say is actually from the Lord. That's where I breathe a deep sigh of relief. Every time somebody wanted to grab the microphone and thought they spoke authoritatively, for God that we would have a problem. But Paul said, don't assume that. He, in fact, he tells us, test everything. Does this purported prophecy exhort, encourage, and console, or can it have the potential to bring people harm? He says, does it violate the written word of God or the principles revealed in it? Does it elevate the prophet more than it does Jesus? All of this should disqualify a prophetic word. A lover of Jesus will rather rarely be offended. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians again. He talks about how that all prophecies should be analyzed. And a lover of Jesus will rarely be offended by a critical analysis of their prophetic word. They just won't be if they really love Jesus. Because we all, Paul says again in 1 Corinthians, that we all prophesy in part. He says that. But a false prophet will always be offended when you start analyzing their their prophecies. If the word passes the test, then we're encouraged by Paul in this passage to hold fast to what is good. But if what was spoken doesn't pass the test, we should reject it. Did you know it's okay to do that? Just reject it as misguided at the very least and intentionally deceptive at the very worst case. Paul doesn't intend that, that any person in our church be anointed as the prophet. In fact, I can prove that because in 1 Corinthians, he said, I desire that you all prophesy. That would be pretty encouraging, wouldn't it? Lastly, Paul admonishes the Thessalonians to abstain from every form of evil. What a great, concise instruction that is. The people of God have to fervently avoid everything that could pull them from close fellowship with God or that could result in mockery and shame to the gospel, whether from inside the church or outside the church, they should pursue holiness to the glory of God by abstaining from every form of evil. I'm going to ask our communion workers to come. There's a lot here, as you saw. There's a lot uh, of instruction about leaders and each other and, and about, um, the, um, uh, about you know, our relationship with God. And I just want you to, as we worship today, or as we take communion rather, I, I want you to consider 
what the Lord in those list of instructions wants to say to you. And I want to mean that in a couple of ways. There may have been something in there where you kind of cringed about maybe you look at your life and, and you've been a person who, who gossips about leaders and not one who, who loves and esteems them. Or you're someone who um, never rejoices. You just complain about everything that rolls your way if you're honest. And, and, and praying is just something that maybe you try to do every once in a while, kind of cram it into your schedule, but it's not a, a joyful walk, a daily walk of constant prayer. Or, or maybe, you know, you, you um, are way too quick to not give thanks. You just complain and gripe and, and, and you have forgotten all the blessings that God has bestowed upon you. Maybe you're someone who's scared to death that the Holy Spirit might want to do something in you. Or maybe you've heard somebody uh, speak something prophetically, either from here or just sharing with you, and you just, uh, you know, just kind of despise that. So there's all kinds of instructions in this that the Holy Spirit wants you, wants to put there. It makes no difference if I, if I preach this eloquently, and I'm not even saying that I did. I'm saying, but it makes no difference if the Holy Spirit isn't allowed access to your heart to apply any of it. So before we come to the table today, I want to ask, ask you what the Lord wants to say to you about what was preached. And even further, I want to ask you if the Lord, uh, through this idea of not despising prophecy, wants to say something to you. Just wants to put something in your heart. It might come as a word, a sentence, a scripture, a, a picture. There's all kinds of ways that he can impress that on you, but, but it's for the benefit of the body. So I want you to ask this. I'm going to ask you to stand up right now, and we're going to pray. And the reason I'm doing this right at communion time is because, as you've heard me say a thousand times, communion is not about you. This part of our service is not about you. This part of the service is about us. Did you hear me? It isn't about you. It's about us. And this whole message today this whole, that Paul gave us through Thessalonians 1 was about us. It's about how we should relate, how we should, should connect and serve and, and, and connect to our Father in heaven. And so I want you to ask God, have the guts to ask God, what does belief in this message this morning look like for me? What does repentance in this message look like for me? And Lord, is there something that you would speak to my heart? You said to not despise prophecy. And so Lord, I don't know. And then you said in first Corinthians, we should all prophesy. So just ask him if there's something he wants to speak to you. And you know, what would be really cool. I feel like he does speak something to you. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear you and even help you discern uh, the, the prophecy. We're not going to say, if you if you were a little off, we're not going to say, well, you sinner, don't ever come back here. No, you're learning to hear God. That's a good thing. Amen? It's a great thing. So we want to encourage you to do that. So let's pray and remember that Jesus died. His body was broken, represented by the, body, by the bread. His blood was poured out, represented by the cup. And, and those things are to remind us that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And, and, and from all of us, from every background, from every race, from every socioeconomic strata, he made us into one body that serves each other and is uniquely connected to each other. And I don't know about you, but I'm very excited about that. I want to be connected to you. And I hope you feel the same way.
Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now what I want to do before we proceed, everybody bow your heads, everybody close your eyes. And I want you to very intentionally do what I asked you to do. Ask God what it was from the message you just heard that he wants you to really consider. I'm not asking to make vows and say, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. Every day I'm going to just be giving thanks constantly. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying to return to Christ and say, Lord, you are worth my rejoicing. You're worth my prayer. You're worth my forgiveness uh, to extend it to others. You're worth my giving thanks. Just, just take a moment. He wants to teach you through his word. So ask him what he is he wants to teach you. And don't come to this table until he shows you. Because the word is for everybody. And then as soon as he shows you that, shows you what he wants you to do, I want you to ask him to give you a word just to speak to you, to speak to your heart, to give you some gentle reminder or confirmation from the Holy Spirit. Just wait. Don't rush. We're not in any hurry. Don't, Don't rush. Just let the Lord speak. And then when when you're satisfied that you've heard him and, and, and you know where, how to proceed in your life, then you can come to the table. The last verse says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to speak. Apply the word and speak to us prophetically and let us hear your voice and be changed radically transformed into your image because of it. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. We remember you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.